life hacks that you can do in five minutes, three minutes, two minutes. So if you're suddenly feeling shame or you're having a panic attack or you're angry or someone speaks toxic words, what do you do quickly, quickly, quickly in that moment? So it's dissipate with exercise. You, know, you can tap as well, which can calm you down. You can take a deep breath, which can calm you down. A 10 second breath is, a, is another technique that's amazing, which I also did when I was frustrated, is when you breathe in for three and out for seven, when you breathe out longer than you breathe in, that increases your decision-making capability. I call that the 10-second pause. If you add this component to it, if you say, think, feel as you count to three, and then choose for seven counts, if you do that, you add a cognitive component to the breathing, and in that 10 seconds, you've got breath work and cognitive work. And if you repeat that six to nine times, you will calm down your brain and your body instantly. I'm Doug Bobst, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest on the show is Dr. Caroline Leaf, and she is a communication pathologist. She's a cognitive neuroscientist, a best-selling author, and podcast host. During her years in clinical practice and her work with thousands of underprivileged teachers and students in her home country of South Africa and in the USA, she developed her theory of how we think, build memory, and learn creating practical guides and tools that have transformed the lives of hundreds of thousands of individuals with things like traumatic brain injury, uh, learning disabilities, ADD, ADHD, autism, dementia, and mental health issues such as anxiety and depression. She has helped hundreds of thousands of students and adults learn how to use their mind to detox and grow their brain, helping them succeed in every area of their lives, including school, university, and in the workplace. Today, we discuss her work and how toxic thoughts actually can affect your brain and how to stop them. She shares the difference between the subconscious, conscious, and non-conscious parts of the mind. We talk about why it takes 63 days to form or break a habit. We get into how to change your state and improve your mood if you're feeling anxious or depressed. But most importantly, she shares the five secret steps that are scientifically proven to clean up your mental mess so that you can live with less stress, anxiety, and toxic thoughts. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Dr. Caroline Leaf to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Dr. Caroline Leaf, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, I'm thrilled to be on your podcast. Thank you, Doug. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. And I've had the utmost pleasure in researching you and getting to know you a bit more for the last several months. And I just finished your latest book all on cleaning up the mental mess, which we're surely going to get into and one of the things that we were talking about before we recorded that's really fascinating to me about you is how you've blended the therapeutic and neurological, the science-based approaches together to help people understand from a therapeutic perspective how to improve their mental health and then also the science behind it and why that backs it up. So that way people can really gain clarity, understanding, and then know how to take action. So what inspired you to kind of combine the two to be able to help so many people? 
Well, thank you, first of all, for just that very eloquent explanation of my book. I mean, that's just amazing. And I appreciate it so much. And also, I love your story. And it's people like yourself and the stories that you have around your life that really inspired me to dive deep into what the mind is. And so if I backtrack to the 80s when I was studying, that which will date me, which when I did my first first degrees, at that point in the 80s, they didn't believe that the bank brain could change. So I was changed, trained in an era where we were told if someone was a drug addict or if someone was uh, had traumatic brain injuries or trauma and their brain had changed, that's it. They couldn't, there was pretty much no hope. All you had to do was teach them to compensate. So our therapeutic approaches in those days was very much around compensation as opposed to restoration or reconceptualization. And already I was a scientist. I had a fascination with the brain from very young and the mind from very young. And I just decided that one of the lectures inspired me by saying mind is the hard question of science. We don't understand mind. We probably never will. And the brain doesn't change. And I thought, what a hopeless kind of comment. And then I had another lecturer who was a neuroscientist who said, because I was doing a combination of medicine and neuroscience in my degree, and another lecturer who said, oh, but you know what? Things are going to change in the next few years. So I decided to start researching. I started working with people with traumatic brain injuries. And the reason I started there was because there was very little research on people with severe damage in their brain. And everything was just kind of all of your brain's damage. That's it. So I thought, well, if I can take the worst case scenario, and if I can teach them to understand their mind and how to manage their mind and stimulate their mind and direct their mind very intentionally, could we change the patterns in the brain? Could we change the neurology and the neural circuits and all that kind of stuff? In other words, uh, neuroplasticity. So I started with some of the earliest neuroplasticity research in the 80s, where I was told by my professors, that's a ridiculous question. Why are you asking? The brain can't change. And I showed with people with severe brain damage that if you stimulate your mind and you change your brain, if you change your mind, if you directly and intentionally manage your mind, you will change your brain. And so I started a whole career of research and clinical application. I paralleled the two. My research wasn't in the lab. It was always with people in extreme circumstances. I was born in Zimbabwe, grew up in South Africa in the apartheid regime. So I was in a position to be able to go and see the effects of racism, see the effects of trauma. I worked three days a week in what they call the township areas that were so badly treated by a terrible government at that point. And in the transition period, so I saw people change, go through things. I worked in places like Rwanda after the genocide. So I had the opportunity of working with people in extreme circumstances, extreme brain damage. And that really stimulated me to understand what is the mind? What is the brain? What is the difference? How do we build thoughts in our brain? What are thoughts? What are memories? And it was those questions that have driven me and clinical clinical um, expertise. And then I've just done research. And and as you mentioned, my, my new book, Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess, I've done a put a summary of my latest clinical trials in there. So that's kind of where it started. I don't know if you want to dive into more depth with yeah, specific think, questions. or. <laughs> well, I think the, the thing that stands out to me, one of the many in that is that you define neuroplasticity very simply in saying it's the way we can impact our mind to change the brain. And yes. I think when we think of the mind, we think of the brain, we think they're one and the same, just like we have a different view on the fact that our mental health and our physical health is separate when in, in fact, they are so intertwined, right? So I think we need to redefine how we look at our body so we can gain better understanding of what's going on. And knowing that the mind and the brain are separate, just like the fact of our physical health and our mental health are intertwined. I think if people can understand that, they'll be able to take better action 
on improving their mental health because let's face it, we are in a mental health mess right now. Oh, totally. Totally, Doug. You're so right. I've watched this this trajectory for the last 38 years that I've been in this field. I've been 38 years now I've been in the field. And I've watched us going from looking at a person in a holistic way to looking at people as being a product of their brain. Mm. And that's neuroreductionism. So, I mean, I'm a neuroscientist, but I'm also in mental health and a communication pathologist. So, I have chosen to look at not just the brain, but at the mind. So, I've got some models here. For those of you that are just listening, I'm holding up a model of the brain. And essentially, you're quite right, Doug. People think that the mind and the brain are the same thing. And the reason that I have tried to show people the difference is because there is a difference between the mind and the brain. And we have control over our mind and our brain. So when I say we have control, what's the we? The we is also mind. So we are mind. The uniqueness of you, Doug, me, Caroline, we are mind. Every single person is mind. When you're dead, your brain dies. So what keeps your brain alive? It's that uniqueness of who you are. So I started delving in very early in the 80s into studying the mind-brain connection, the separation, what it is. And that's why I have the scientific and therapeutic link. That's why That's why I bring in, as you mentioned in the beginning, the drive to link science behind the therapeutic approaches. And in that study, I have tried to understand and define mind. So Basically, mind is how you think and feel and choose. It's so simple that people don't get it. It, it, it's as simple as that. Mind is not this elusive concept, which has been made out to be. People just yesterday I was being interviewed and someone said, oh, mind is this elusive concept. And people say it to me all the time. And I actually said, no, mind's not elusive. Mind's not. It's considered the hard question of science, but it's actually not because you're using your mind to do the scientific research. You're using your mind 24-7. Your mind is you. It's how you uniquely think and feel and choose. And the easiest way to understand that, Doug, is to think about the fact that we can go three weeks without food. We can go three days without water. We can go three minutes without oxygen, but we can't even go three seconds without using our mind. So our mind is always in action 24-7. It's your mind that when you wake up in the morning, you're responding to the day, how you're going to, your mindset for the day, the texts, the emails, the conversations, whatever work, what you eat, you exercise, even how you get nutrition into your body, even the assimilation of nutrients is determined by mind. You can lose up to 85% of nutritional value just by being in a foul mood or being irritated or frustrated. You can lose the benefits of exercise. And I know you're a big proponent of exercise. So am I. I mean, I do fasted work workouts every day. And but if I'm not in the right mindset, my I won't get the full benefit from that exercise. It'll certainly help me get into a better mood. But the point is that your mind is behind everything, what you wear, what you eat, what you say, how you react to your loved ones, how you react to the news, COVID, your mind yeah. drives you. So you're always thinking, you're always feeling, you're always choosing. And my argument is that if you're always thinking, feeling and choosing, can you control that? Can you control that mind action and how do you do it? And that's what I've spent 38 years researching because I have patients coming to me with all level of trauma, all level of brain damage, learning disabilities, autism, trauma from war, trauma from abuse, trauma from bullying, trauma from learning disabilities, not being able to learn, you name it. That's what I worked with, juveniles, adults, et cetera, young kids. And all of it I would bring back to, okay, let's understand how your mind is working, and let's see how we can use your mind to fix your mind to change your brain. So as you correctly said, neuroplasticity earlier on, neuro means brain, plastic means to change, and neuroplasticity is the ability of the brain to change. In the 80s, they didn't believe that was possible, and I did some of the first research in the 80s showing that you can change your brain when you change your mind. I showed you can you can get a 35 to 75% improvement in behavior 
cognitive, social, and emotional when you change your mind. So change your mind, change your brain, you will change your cognitive, social, and emotional behavior. And I've confirmed that over the years and in my recent trials. So when you think and feel and choose, which is what you're doing right now as you're listening to me and watching, you're actually pushing energy through your brain and your brain is responding. So your brain is not you. Your brain is a responder. You control your brain. Your brain doesn't control you. You actually drive your brain and you drive the neuroplasticity of your brain. And so my argument, as I said, is that if that's the case, how do we do it? Can we manage it? And we can. The good news is, yes, you can tap into your inner wisdom mind to control your crazy mind to fix your brain and to heal your body. It's all connected. For sure. And I I definitely want to unpack a lot of that because I think Mm. you definitely uh, put into context how important it is on things like neuroplasticity and taking control of our thoughts and being able to change our brain so that we can improve our mental health. And as I alluded to earlier, this we're in a very bad time mentally. We're overprescribed. There's tons of people oh, yeah. that are on um, anxiety, medication, depression, medication. Not that I don't have anything against any of that. I take an antidepressant myself, but it's like, what else are you doing besides that? It's not the end all be all right? Just like the meditation isn't the end all be all. Just like you talk about affirmations isn't the end all be all. It's a combination of everything else. And I think the one thing that causes a lot of us to spiral down mentally is our thoughts. And I really want to dive into the science of thoughts, where toxic thoughts can lead you, like what effects it can really have on your brain. I mean, I've I've read in your book, it can cause brain damage. Exactly. Exactly. And then how do we get the pendulum to start swinging the other way so that we can rewire our brain with more positive thoughts that can help us live a better life? Excellent question and, and excellent comments and observations. And one of the things that we, uh, to, just to launch into that answer, one of the things that you and I were discussing just before we started the interview was you mentioned from our research that you'd read about empowerment. And literally what I have seen over the years is that we can we can determine a pathway to empowerment. We can, we, there is a pathway to empowerment. And when I talk about empowerment, I'm meaning being empowered to control those toxic thoughts. But it does begin with understanding those words that are just thrown around in the wellness literature, in the, ther- in the wellness social media platform, in the psychi- psychiatric platform, um, platform or world, and in the therapeutic world. And the words are thoughts, brain, mind, emotions, feelings, cognitive errors. There's just so many words. It's actually kind of confusing. So I'm so glad you asked this question because it's actually fairly simple, as I said in the beginning. So let's start quickly back at the point where you are not your brain. Okay, your mind is your is separate from your brain. Your mind moves through your brain and your brain responds to your mind. In fact, not just your brain responds to your mind, I've got another model over here, but your entire body responds, brain and body respond to your mind. So if here's you, the brain and the body, here's mind. Mind is this energy force and we can use things like quantum physics to understand mind. So it's not some weird woo-woo thing. It's it's something from ancient wisdom, ancient literature, ancient science, science for and great evidence-based science for 150 years now that we've been actually able to describe the concept of mind, conscious mind as using quantum physics. So mind is how you think, feel and choose. It's an energy force. We can describe it with scientific principles and it is a force that um, 
Um, it's your, each person has their own unique way that they think, feel, and choose. So you're always thinking, feeling, and choosing 24-7. During the day, you're thinking, feeling, and choosing in response to life. So you open your eyes and life begins for the day. Everything, text, emails, conversations, news, exercise, food, the lot, the dogs, everything, the whole lot, you are responding to every single experience. How? You receive it through your mind. So you think, feel, and choose about everything. You push that through your brain. Your brain then responds on an electrical, chemical, and magnetic level and influences every cell of your body. So every time you use your mind, which is all the time, you are influencing every single cell of your brain and your body. And you have around about 75 to 100 trillion cells collectively in your brain and body. So every time that you respond with your mind, every time you think, feel, and choose, you are changing down to the level of the DNA of your brain and your body. The pathway to empowerment is understanding how to manage my thinking, feeling, and choosing so that I can actually have a positive impact on my brain and body. And when I've made a mess, which is causing brain damage, because every toxic thought does, how can I rewire that? And because of neuroplasticity, our brain's malleable, our mind is malleable. Mind is a skill. You can actually train yourself to train your mind. So it's a skill. It's a malleable skill that we need to teach our kids and we need to use throughout our entire life. And that means that our brain can keep changing and our body can keep changing. This is also known as integrative medicine, functional links into functional medicine. It's, it covers epigenetics, so many different fields that I've crossed over in this research. Okay, so mind is not brain. They're separate. Mind is how you think, feel, and choose. You think, feeling, and choosing all day long. During the day, you think and feel and choose choose to build thoughts. So there's a consequence. So as you think, feel, and choose, and you push this energy through the brain, the result is that you actually um, cause genetic expression. Proteins form, they group together, and they grow into little trees. So I've got another little analogy here. Here's a little plant. And this is what a thought looks like. So right now, as you're listening to me, you are thinking, feeling, and choosing at the speed of 400 billion actions per second. And you're transforming what you're seeing and hearing into branches on a tree in your brain. So you're growing a little tree. So as I started speaking, you like sowed a little seed, you started growing the roots, and the roots went into a little a tree trunk thingy, and then started growing branches. And then that just continues. As I'm talking, you're just adding more roots, more branches, more roots, more. And this is a thought. So a thought is a physical substance. It's a physical structure that is dynamic and that you build with your thinking, feeling, and choosing, and you're doing this all day long. So we've got infinite space in our brain to build thoughts. Thoughts are built onto neurons in the brain. These are called dendrites, and then there's the axon, and then you've got the dendrites at the bottom as well. So this is a physical structure. So thoughts are the consequence of thinking, feeling, and choosing. You think, feel, choose, that pushes energy through your brain, and you end up building a thought. So then that thought, you every time, as you're thinking, you just add more branches, and you build new thoughts because it's a new experience. And so all day long, we're building thoughts. At nighttime, we sort out the thoughts that we've been building during the day. And that's why we dream. And when we've got unsorted out thoughts, that's why we can't sleep. And we have nightmares when we've got suppressed traumas, because those suppressed traumas come up in our brain's housekeeping, which is what dreaming and sleep are doing. So thoughts are real things that occupy mental real estate. And like this trees made of branches and roots, thoughts are made of memories. So that's the other word that we get confused with. We think a thought is a memory. No, thoughts are the tree and thoughts are made of memories. So all these little branches that you see are memories. The roots that you can't see, but they're in the pot are the, also memories. The memories down here of this thought are the 
the origin story, the cause, the original source, and the roots, the, the branches up here are the effect of the thought. So this will lead to your behaviors, what you say, what you do, your actions, etc. Now, this is a healthy thought. So this is bringing health to the brain. The brain's designed for survival. It's wired for love. Our mind is designed for survival. So it's called an optimism bias. So when we have a toxic experience, like an abuse or a trauma, or we have a toxic habit, or we have get frustrated or irritated or snap at someone, we actually then in response to an experience, we also build a thought, but it's toxic. So I've got a toxic wiry looking tree to represent a toxic thought. Once again, there's the structure, there's the roots, there's the tree trunk, and there's the branches. The roots are the origin. So that could be the abuse. It could be the, whatever it is, the experience, the life experience that produces a perspective, which then produces the behaviors. So these branches up here are the behaviors and emotions. So every thought has origin, perspective, behaviors, emotions, and then this thought generates an energy, which is a warning signal. So when we've got a, this toxic thought in our brain, our brain's wired for love and survival. This is not survival. This causes inflammation in the brain. It upsets the energy patterns in the brain, which I speak about in my book. It increases cortisol, decreases DHEA, increases homocysteine, shortens our um, telomeres in our chromosomes. If a, a chromosome looks like an X on your DNA and the, my fingernails, which are red, are the telomeres. And those telomeres have a lot to do with our emotional status. So if I've got a toxic thought, my telomeres will not be healthy, which means my cells will not be healthy, which means I'm much more vulnerable, up to 70 to 95% more vulnerable to disease. But as soon as I capture this, as soon as, if I suppress this, it gets worse. But as soon as I embrace this and process this and embrace is acknowledging, bring it up, become aware and, and embrace this and start trying to understand this and re embrace process and reconceptualize it, I can then control it. So when we talk about controlling our thoughts, when we talk about dealing with toxic thoughts, we're talking about, first of all, acknowledging we've got them. Because if they suppressed into the non-conscious part of our mind, which is the most intelligent part of our mind, which is the biggest part of our mind, which is the where the wisdom is and the messes are, so it's a mixture of all the our wisdom plus our messes, if we push stuff down, not only do we damage the brain and body, um, but we're also going to damage our, our mental health because this causes a, a, a terrible reaction in the brain and the body, which then feeds back into the mind and we'll experience depression, anxiety, fear, whatever, all that kind of stuff. So to deal with that, we need to pull this up and we need to, to start acknowledging, processing and embracing. So a massive part of this, Doug, is the view in Western culture now that has been so damaging for the last 40 years. I talk about this in my research. I've shown this and demonstrated and proved this in my research. It's also research from around the world saying the same thing. There's a lot of us scientists in this field. The biggest thing is that this toxic thought is damaging the brain and it's generating signals. What are the signals? Depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, psychotic breaks, constant anger. Those are not illnesses. They're not it's like they're not like cancer or diabetes. They are, let's say, for example, you depressed and I'm depressed. Let me let me pause really quick. Sure, sure. Absolutely. I, I, I want to paint a picture for the listeners if they're listening to this. Absolutely. You're what you were just comparing. So she was showing healthy thoughts and a healthy green, typical looking tree that had healthy looking branches and, and everything else. And the toxic thought was it was just all entangled it looked like it was dying completely dead in dark so it's almost like looking at a healthy lung versus a lung of somebody who smokes very similar and from my understanding the baseline the roots of the tree analogy you were talking about 
is your past experiences, is the way you grew up, is your patterning, is your current habits, and then your thoughts are derived from that. No, it's in the thought. No, no, it's in the thought. Okay. So a a thought is a tree. Think of a thought being a tree. So think of a pine. The easiest visual is a, you've almost got it, but it's, so it is confusing. So think of a pine tree, uh, you know, Christmas tree forest. So the forest of Christmas trees, that's like an easy analogy. So if you walk, you could see, if you look at this huge forest of all these Christmas trees, that's what it looks like inside your brain. You've got all these trees. Every tree is a thought. In amongst the beautiful green trees, you're going to have these trees, Mm. which are the toxic thoughts. They're causing brain damage, but they can be changed. They're causing brain damage and they're causing damage in every system of our body, cardiovascular, neurological, et cetera. So if you go up to a tree, if you land your helicopter, park next to one of the trees and look at the tree, you are going to be looking at the branches. So you're going to be looking at the behaviors, the signals, the emotional and physical warning signals of depression, tension in your body, um, aggressive behavior, drug-taking behavior, whatever the behaviors are, perspective of life, but you can't see the roots yet. So you kind of have to do the work of digging the tree up, turning and finding the roots. The roots of the tree are the cause, the origin story, the source of why you have the drug addiction behavior or why you have that aggressive behavior, whatever it may be, whatever it is that you're dealing with, which generated the signal. Okay. So you, you want to root that up and reconceptualize it. Got it. So that makes sense. So I want to also... Uh, go into another thing that you talked about, which was this notion of the non-conscious. And I think many listening to this a lot now have probably heard of the subconscious and the conscious mind. And for those who have been knocked out, you've heard of being unconscious. And what, from my understanding, and let me explain it in my words, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, the the non-conscious is our baseline. It's like what we try to come back to our subconscious is our, 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 our wiring, our current patterns, our current thoughts, our current habits. And it'll always try to bring us down, back down to our baseline in the non-conscious. And the conscious is just kind of how we act in our current actions throughout the day. And I think the analogy that you've said is that when we want to make a change, when we want to change a thought, when we want to change a behavior, we have to deal with the non-conscious. We have to create a new normal for our non-conscious, a new baseline. And I know one of the things that you've said is that depression and anxiety are just signals that something's off, right? So if you ever feel like you're anxious and your heart's racing a lot or you're having sleepless nights, I mean, at least in my own experience, I've definitely felt that I was overwhelmed. I've definitely felt that I was doing things I didn't want to be doing. My sleep's been off. My, my nutrition's been off. I haven't been doing my gratitude. I mean, all these things that are causing this and my, my body's like trouble, trouble, trouble. And the same thing with depression. If I'm depressed, if I'm not feeling good, it's like, all right, am I exercising enough? Am I eating right? Am I hanging out with good people and go on and on and on? And it's not to say that I'm sure just like there's outliers in every situation where there's some people that just are chemically depressed, right? But I think mm-hmm. what, the, what you try to teach in your book is you have to get to the root of the problem and figure out what's causing this in order to change it. You can't just say, okay, that's it. That's your identity. You're going to be depressed or anxious the rest of your life because then you, people feel so disempowered and they feel like they can't do anything. I mean, so- if I was wrong in any of my explanation in my own words, you can feel free to correct me, but that was my understanding and how you explain it in the book. 
No, you've done a brilliant job, My, absolutely brilliant job. Minor little touches that I'll, that I'll make to what you've said, but you've really summarized it beautifully. And thank you for your in-depth reading and studying of this information. And you've got it. The one of the a couple of things I'll just highlight and and, and won't undergird what you've explained. Essentially, yes, if you have depression or anxiety, it's not that you have a neuropsychiatric brain disease, which is what we've been told in the right. current era. For the last 30 to 50 years, the move has been to make everything about your brain. It's called neuroreductionism. So if you have a d- depression, it's seen as a symptom of an illness. Like if you have a, um, heart palpitations, it's seen as a symptom of cardiovascular illness. It's But it's wrong. It's not the same thing. Because we do know that that if, if you've got cardiovascular issues, for example, that's part of your biology, then the biomedical model, which looks for symptoms and diagnoses and treatments, works for that. But when it comes to the mind, it's a different story. The mind is separate but inseparable. So it's separate from the brain and body, but it's inseparable because it has to be expressed through the brain and the body. So obviously how we use our mind affects the brain and the body. So if we have mental chaos in our mind, we will have mental chaos in our brain and our body, which is why I talk about cleaning up the mental mess. And every human goes through the mental mess. I just want to stress that, Doug, that it's not something that only is, that's only a few people are mentally ill. No, no, no. That's the wrong message we've been told. We all battle. I'm in the field. I've been in it for 38 years. I'm a mother of four. I'm a wife. I'm a researcher. I'm a scientist, whatever. I'm an author. I battle with my mental mess. I battle daily to work on frustration or irritation or angst or whatever. And I use my, my techniques all the time. I'm very open and honest in my podcast about experiences and how I'm feeling of my mental mess. Okay. So, there, so we need to level the playing field. We need to see depression and anxiety not as symptoms of an illness, but as symptoms of an underlying cause. Mm. There's something going on in your life. So let's say, and I was initially just a few moments ago, and I'm going to come circle back to the unconscious mind. If I'm depressed today and you depressed today, it doesn't mean you and I have a clinical depression of illness of depression, which is what we, we would be told. If we were depressed for three days or five days in a row, you and I would be told if we went to a doctor, oh, you've got clinical depression, boom, here's your medication, okay? That's not science. It's not accurate science at all. It hasn't even been, it's not even a proven theory. It's just a nice little neat package that you can, you know, just easily kind of deal with people like that. It's not, a, it's not healthy. It's actually shown over the last 50 years to be very damaging. And it's caused people to die younger. In fact, that attitude, and I talk about that in my book, has created a system where people, if they're not allowed to express who they are, they're just stuck in a label and they don't actually work through their depression properly, you can shorten people's lifespans by 15 to 25 years. Well, I would add also like really quick, sorry to interrupt you, I just wanted to add that one thing on top of that that was coming to mind was the immense shame that comes with that. Like, exactly. why, is this, why is this happening to me? Why am I different? What's, What's wrong, wrong with, with me? me? Exactly. Yeah. And they feel like, completely helpless and that they're like, all right, this is going to be who I am for the rest of my life. And I think what needs to change is, and again, I'm just speaking from my own personal experience and how I've dealt and battled with mental health issues my entire life is to not label yourself and create an identity around your mental illness. Instead of saying, I am depressed or I am anxious, I'm feeling anxious. I'm feeling depressed because what that does is it doesn't make it, it makes it more finite and not infinite. Like you feel like you're just in that moment and you can get Mm -hmm. through it and you're like, all right, how can I navigate? How can I reattach some different behaviors to these emotions, which we'll talk about in your five steps um, a little bit later. And there's so much power in that, Dr. Lee. There's so much power when you learn that you can actually do something about it. 
And I believe it would reduce the shame. So I wanted to kind of cut in there and just share that because I think that in itself is almost a bigger issue than the depression itself is the shame around it and the stigma. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that. And, and, and I'm so glad because in my research, and you would have read that in the book, yeah. I actually show that. I show that that whole shame, stigma, and seeing myself, I'm depressed versus I am feeling depressed because exactly. of, yep. that your brain changes. The minute my subjects in my study, and this has also happened in my other studies, but and, and also with my patients in my clinical practice, and I practiced for 25 years, but the minute someone shifted their thing from, I am feeling depressed because of, or I am feeling anxious because of, when they shifted to that from, I am depressed, I am shame we saw massive changes inside of the brain we saw an asymmetry in the front of the brain which is not good become balanced the asymmetry went away we saw an increase in blood flow increase in oxygen increase in what we call gamma activity balance between the alpha beta delta and gamma across the brain in other words i can go on and on and i talk about that in the book i talk about changes in the blood first the changes in the brain Sorry, first it changes in the non-conscious mind. And we can talk about, we'll get back to that in a moment. Then it changes in the brain and then it changes in the body. And then only are we aware of it consciously. So our non-conscious mind and our brain and our body reflect change before we consciously are aware of it. So this, so the, yes, what you, so to, to come back to the shame and stigma, it's such a hopeless message we're given. Labeled and that's it for the rest of your life. Take the drug, that's it, you are you sick. That's not the truth. It's such a lie. It's not science. The science shows that you can shift. I showed that in um, nine weeks of, in a, we did a, the most, my most recent clinical trial was over a period of nine weeks. And there's a very significant reason why nine weeks, which we can talk about in a moment. But I showed that when you shift to, I can manage my depression. Yes, I'm depressed, but because of these, the depression's a symptom of, and I'm going to embrace this, this thought, and I'm going to work through from my emotional and physical warning signals to the behaviors and the emotions, to the perspective, to the root, and I'm going to work at it daily over, over nine weeks. That's what my subjects in my clinical trial were doing using the system that I've developed based on how the mind and the brain work. When you do that, you actually change the way that your brain functions. You change your body. You, you heal the brain damage. You heal your body. You heal your mind you start you may still have days of depression and and this is the path to empowerment so a lot of my subjects and my patients over the years and people that have read my work and studied my work and used my app there's an app that by the way that goes with this book called the neurocycle app and the the over the years have said as soon as i realize okay i'm still going to have depression i'm still going to have days where i'm frustrated or anxious or worked up or react incorrectly but now i know what to do i can manage it and and then that, that shame around and the stigma around mental health, which they think if you get a label, it's going to remove it. But getting a label adds to it because as soon as you have that label and you admit it to a psych ward against your will, perhaps, or you locked up there, as soon as that's on your record, it affects job applications, insurance. So practical things like that and as well as your self-esteem. And then that in a turn goes back into your mental health. To come back to the, the non-conscious and conscious mind, it's so important to understand the distinction. And you gave a very good um, example, I'll just go into a little bit more depth. The mind is the biggest part of you and it's got three parts. And as you've mentioned, non-conscious mind, conscious mind, and subconscious. The non-conscious mind is the biggest part of you. And yes, baseline is a good example because it's your baseline. It's designed for survival. It's designed for optimism bias. So it's not designed to have toxic thoughts in it. It's designed to manage toxic thoughts. So we're always going to have toxic reactions because it's life and we're on a continuum and things happen and we won't always react perfectly. The difference is, is that you can stay in toxicity or you can recognize toxicity and trauma and bad habits and you can deal with them. I'm talking about teaching 
teaching people to recognize and do something about them because you have that power in you on your own as well as with others. This is not a journey alone. It's a journey that you, 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 you're living with yourself 24-7. So you've got to know how to manage your mind. But then obviously also therapy and friends and support and family are essential in the process, which I stress. So your non-conscious mind is where all your core wisdom is, your baseline, the, your, your brilliance. Everyone knows how much they can actually handle. Everyone knows that if you really dig down deep, we make comments like, I really feel that. You've, I'm sure you've caught yourself saying that kind of thing, Doug. I really think this, or deep down inside, I think, you know, so though that is us recognizing our inner core baseline wisdom. That's the non-conscious mind. The non-conscious mind has that, and that's what you pull on in the neurocycle, which is the system that I've developed over all these years, which helps you to use your mind to change your crazy mind to fix your brain and your body. And that to the inside, the non-conscious mind is all this wisdom and all our life experiences and memories and belief systems, everything you said, and the mess. So in amongst this forest of trees of wisdom and life is also the toxic part of life. And so what this does is in amongst this beautiful green forest of trees of the non-conscious mind, when we have these immediately, like your body tries to get rid of a virus or like your body tries to fight, your immune system will fight a virus or your immune system will fight something and you'll get a, a boil forming, which is your body trying to get rid of. That's your non-conscious mind tries to get rid of these. How does it do it? This creates toxic energy and it uses the subconscious mind. So the subconscious mind is the bridge between the non-conscious and the conscious. So then your non-conscious mind scans, sees these, and then it sends through the subconscious mind warning signals of depression. Depression is a message from the non-conscious through the subconscious that, hey, wake up, this is a symptom of something going on. Anxiety, anger, frustration, etc. All of those are symptoms from your non-conscious mind, warning signals, alarms, like your alarm going off in the morning, and they move through the subconscious mind into the conscious mind. The conscious mind is the smallest part. It's only awake when you're awake. The non-conscious and the subconscious are awake 24-7. The conscious mind's only awake when you're awake. We've got to, when we awake, be very deliberate and intentional about observing what we're thinking, feeling, and choosing. So we've got to stand back, train ourselves, and we can. This is a skill that I have shown in my research, you can do this is the pathway to empowerment, you can learn to stand back consciously use your veto power of your conscious mind to stand back and observe your own thinking, feeling and choosing and change your thinking, feeling and choosing. So if you stand back and observe your thinking, feeling and choosing how you're responding, reacting, facial expressions, communication, how you're handling that email, that text, that situation, you then start listening to the subconscious mind, which then start means you start digging into the non-conscious mind, which mean then means you tune into the signals of your body. And then you can pull this up as soon as it's up, it's weak. As soon as you're aware this has weakened its power over you, you've shifted the power balance. We see from science, from neuroscience, the minute you're aware of something, these little protein branches weaken. They become malleable. The, the bonds between the, the links, between the protein branches, actually weaken. So it's designed for change. Awareness brings physical, structural malleability and mind malleability. And that's essentially what mind management, which is what I teach, does. And it can be applied on every level. I said a lot, Doug. You can unpack that. I say a lot, but I think it was all it was all very good information and super helpful for the listeners. And I think when you feel empowered and you have this self-awareness, a, you feel empowered and then it disempowers the toxic thoughts. It takes, exactly. it, it, it takes the power away from that. And one of the things that I think is very common, and I talk about this a lot, is people who fall into the shame cycle when they're feeling yeah. depressed and they're feeling anxious. 
because I think people attach anxiety and depression with an identity so that if they're in in a state of depression, they're in a state of anxiety. They're like, why am I feeling this way? What's wrong with me? I should not feel like this, blah, 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 and go on and on and on. And then they end up making unhealthy choices and habits based on that. Maybe they end up falling into a two to three day cycle where they're just being pessimist or pessimistic, or they're being a victim or just feeling sorry for themselves or self-pity, which we all know isn't going to help anybody feel any better. Or maybe they turn to things like drugs and alcohol, or they go and spend a bunch of money that they shouldn't be spending or whatever the case may be. And what I try to tell people is what you beautifully talk about as well is just practicing that self-awareness and then taking action, being like, okay, I'm depressed. I'm anxious. Now what? How can I make different decisions that align with who I want to be in the future that, that are healthy, that are going to make me a better version of myself? And from reading your book and the research you did and the clinical trials on these five steps, which we're going to get into in just a couple minutes, what you found was one of the biggest things that helped people was they were aware of when they were anxious. They were aware when they were depressed. And it made them feel better because they felt like they had some sense of control on how they could move forward. Exactly. So what I wanted to, to ask is, okay, so let's get into this. Like what, what, are, what can people do? So say somebody right now is, is they're in a rut, they're having toxic thoughts, they're feeling depressed, they're feeling anxious, they, they can't figure out how to get out of this rut. They've been told that they're going to live like this the rest of their life. Why did you pick these five steps? And what's the evidence say on why it works so well? Excellent question. Okay, so the five steps come from 38 years of research of trying to understand all this mind-brain stuff we've been talking about. So there's a massive scientific underpinning to the simplicity. Now, working with people in extreme situations, I had to make something very complex, very simple. Mm -hmm. So even though five steps sound so simple, it, it comes from profound science. So that's why I put the clinical trials and things in there for people to see that. And you're quite right. When people are depressed and anxious, what, they, what my clinical trials show is these subjects that were in the control, experimental group that got the neurocycle, that actually got the mind management technique of the neurocycle, which we're going to talk about, they were able to see their depression, anxiety for what it was. It was a symptom of, and they had a technique to manage it. So with the awareness came mind management. And this is where there's massive problems in the current wellness industry, because there's so much meditation has been taken out of context and put it's taken it's been to sort of not in every case but in most cases it's been taken out of a whole philosophy a whole eastern philosophy and it's become one little thing and it's this mindfulness now is the answer and the key be aware of myself in the moment but what we see from science that actually can have a negative impact and i showed that in my clinical trials that if you are aware so my control group they got all the the psychological testing the narrative which is the most important the person's story that's i want to stress that psychological testing and 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 scales are can only determine so much the truth is your story if two people are depressed they have two different stories the story is the biggest and most important thing we also looked in the brain we looked at the QEG inside the brain we looked at blood we looked at DNA so we looked at lots of different measures I had a control and experimental group and the control group didn't get mind management but they were made very aware of their issues through the testing so they knew they had a bunch of problems but they were still I am shame I am anxiety I am depression I am stigma I all that stuff you've been talking about 
the experimental group started with that, but then they got a mind management tool. So they went beyond just awareness. So what I did was I, the, the experimental group, which is what I've taught, which I teach the technique is in the book. It's the neurocycle. There's a brain preparation phase. And then there's a five-step phase you go through, which is beyond mindfulness. Okay. It's much deeper, much more expensive, very, very strong science incorporates all kinds of medical, Eastern philosophy, Western philosophy, huge science, neuropsychology, epigenetics. It's quantum physics. It is very hardcore science that we're talking about now. And I'm stressing that because this is not woo-woo stuff. I don't teach woo-woo stuff. Everything I teach, I can back up with thousands of studies and including my own clinical trials that we're publishing on. Okay, that's why I put them in this book. Okay, so first of all, you have to prepare your brain. Your brain is a physical organ. It gets tired. And you, you prepare it with what we logic know correct meditation not meditation that's been extracted but good and there's lots of different types if you really research it breathe breath work one of my favorite is Wim Hof who's the Iceman that deep breathing different types of breathing whatever but oxygen in the brain when you breathe you reduce inflammation you reset the brain you would whatever so there's you can get things like havening which is a technique where you where you are the this, this physical touch of skin on your skin of your hands on your skin can calm you down so in other words there's a lot of physical things we can do breathing tapping but all this stuff which there's so much in the wellness industry it's easy to but that's not the answer only it's only the beginning it's the brain preparation phase once you've prepared your brain it's in a more calm receptive state now you can do the work mind work conscious mind work of the five steps and the conscious mind work of the five steps the five steps are need to be done daily over 63 days Okay, so now, it's now why cycle. 63 and not seven or 14 okay. or 21? Because we've heard 21 days builds a habit, right? Yeah, and, and it's and so I, wrong. I mean, I think it's wrong too. And you and I were talking about before how I had to, to reintroduce some, some new habits into my life. And I had that 21 day number in my mind, but I, I just realized like it didn't work for me. I mean, it may, maybe it worked for some, but for me, it definitely didn't work. I, I was more of a, of a late learner. <laughs> No, not a late learner. You're brilliant. You're not a late learner at all. You've transformed your life and you've done what you're an example to uh, showing people what, what, how you can change. And the, the 63 days comes from science. So what we've seen is 21 days is a complete myth. It was started by a, a surgeon many years ago and it got stuck in popular literature like myths do. And then they, be t- they because they get spoken about so often, they get turned into something. There is a significance around the three weeks, but there's very little research. So I decided to do this. I think two other two or three other people that have done research on how long it actually takes to form a habit, proper scientific research, but there's very little if you search the literature. I've put the ones I, I searched very intensively and I've put all those links into my actual book. So I decided to do research and I did very hardcore in my clinical trials. I also looked at what happens in the brain and the body over time to form a habit. What is a habit? And I started this research 38 years ago. Okay. So a habit is an automatized reaction. Automatized doesn't mean monkey brain. It means very, very intelligent, dynamic memory that you form. The easiest way to understand the 21 days is think about driving. If you learn, when you learn to drive at first, you're totally aware of everything and you drive, you you stall the car and you do this and that. And then after a period of time, you can drive. And then every time you get in the car, you think you're driving automatically, but you're not. Because if you were, you'd crash your car. What you do every time you get in your car, you are pulling up an incredibly intelligent memory from your non-conscious through the subconscious into your conscious mind. And you're using all of that knowledge to drive your car. And every experience you gain today, driving your car builds another branch. And then you get out your car, this goes back into the non-conscious till you get in your car again. But this is a dynamic, intelligent, memory but it's a habit it's an automatized habit so 
automatization is the correct scientific word for habit. And we see that it happens in cycles of 21 days. And for something, for a habit, for a thought to become a habit that impacts behavior, it takes at least three cycles of 21 days. So it takes at least 63 days. For the neuroplasticity to become sustainable, that you actually have a thought you can work from. So as you're learning to drive, it's not sustainable. So at day four, you'll get a certain peak, day seven, day 14. And then at day 21, we see what we call a gamma peak in the brain. Gamma waves in the brain show that learning's taking place. And it's a very interesting peak that happens at 21. And then between 21 to 63, the next 42 days, the gamma peak subsides and turn, transforms into a very strong pattern in the brain, which means it's become sustainable. We see physically that the little branches have bumps on them at day one. And by day seven, the bump, uh, sorry, that they, they flat, they, that, like it's a smooth line. By day, by day seven, it's a bump. By day 20, 14, it's a lollipop. And by day 21, it's a mushroom. So in other words, what I'm saying to you is that there's physical changes that occur in the brain. And we see that in the energy in the brain. And we see that in how we use something. So what I found from my research, long story short, is that for at day 21, you would have created a new memory, a reconceptualized memory, but it's not, it doesn't have enough power in it. It doesn't have enough energy, like a little plant that needs to still be watered. You've got to feed it. And so you have to very consciously and deliberately practice using that new way of thinking, practice the driving, practice the you know, not turning to the addictive habit, practice not snapping, practice not saying if only, practice not saying should have, could have, would have, practice not overdo, whatever it is that you're doing. You, you're going to first transform it in the first 21 days, but then you're going to practice for the next 42. Every day of practice adds more energy. So eventually this thing has a lot of energy. It goes into that forest of the non-conscious mind. There's a lot of other, there's trillions of other memories there. So if it's not, doesn't have enough energy, it won't change your behavior. So now you're in a situation, you, you're triggered by that person or that situation brings back a memory. You've changed it. You've worked on it, but you didn't work on it for longer than 21 days. So you remember, you now know logically, oh, I should be acting like that. Why aren't I acting like that? Exactly what you said earlier, you start feeling shame and guilt. Well, the chances are you didn't spend long enough giving this energy. So this new thought you built is stuck. It doesn't have enough energy to jump into the conscious mind. You just remember vaguely you worked on it. So, but, but by doing the extra 42 days, you give this thought enough energy, this new reconceptualized thought enough energy to move into the conscious mind and impact your behavior. Case in point, I used to say, if only all the time. I lived in the world of if onlys. I'd go on a holiday, I'd go out for dinner, I would do something with my family, I would go do something at work, I'd get interviewed, and I would come out of there losing the joy of the moment by saying, if only I said this, if only we did that, if only we, and I would replay narratives in my mind and I would lose the joy of the moment. One day, one of my four kids, and this happened quite a few years ago, one, and, but it's just such a good example. One of my kids said to me, mom, you're actually spoiling the holiday for us. And I said, what do you mean? Because you always say, if only, and they were mad at me. And then they all climbed into me and I realized my toxic behavior, I had a toxic pattern that of if only was stealing the joy of the moment and I was not learning the lessons I could have learned from the moment. So I went through 63 days of, and I knew it was wrong, but I did 63 days. I found out why. I found out the root cause of why I keep saying if only. And after 21 days, I had a new thought 
new habit formed and you thought formed, but it was only after another 42 days, 63 days in total that I actually got the if only under control. I had tried over the years to stop saying if only, but I never pushed beyond seven or 14 days. So I never, it was only when I got to 63 days of doing the five steps every day that it transformed. So that's the, the re, and I'm stressing that because a lot of people give up at day four. That's very common, Doug, is people give up around day four, between day four and day seven. And the reason being is that in the first four days, when you make a decision to do something, and you would have probably experienced this yourself, you get this huge motivational urge, I can do this, New Year's resolutions. I mean, we all know everyone goes to the gym for the first week, and then they don't go to the gym for the second and third week. So that that's because we have this chemical rush that gets us going. It's a survival thing, but then it settles down. It, you can't stay in that chemical high. It settles down. I mean, people feel that motive, that chem, it feels like, oh gosh, I don't want to do this. And a lot of people just stop. You have to push through. One of the things you do talk about often is you've got to push through the pain. The only way out is through. It gets worse before it gets better. All those things, surgery, you cut up to get, you've got to be cut up to get better. So that's what you've got to do. You've got to pull up this pain. Like if it's a trauma from the past, let's say you've had sexual abuse as a young child and you've suppressed it for years and now you're in a relationship and you realize you can't have a decent relationship and you are getting very aggressive and you whatever. And now after your and you're depressed, so you've you've got to look at the depression and look at your behaviors. Why am I depressed? Why can't I form a relationship? Why am I behaving like this? Why am I sabotaging my relationships? And as you pull it up, you start seeing your perspective, and you start and you start, oh my gosh! And as you become aware over a little bit each day, over 21 days, you start becoming aware of the root cause of the, and it might take multiple cycles, but you become aware of the root cause. Oh, and you see it was the sexual abuse and it changed your behavior. And that's painful. You could feel more depressed, more anxious. You get worse before you get better. The only way out is through. But then the day comes where it starts to be reconceptualized. So around about day 21, you up until day 21, as you're working, you'll feel lousy. At day 21, you may also still feel really lousy, but you'll start saying, okay, I can see the lessons learned. I can see where it's from. I can see I am not depressed. I am depressed because of, I have the reasons, I have control. I can now look at the toxic thought, the toxic stress, and I can get control and empowerment over them. But then you've got to pursue beyond to the the, the other 42 days. You've got to go 63 days. So in the system I've developed, and it's in the book, it's in detail, the neurocycle is the five steps that you do with your mind to get to listen to your subconscious mind, to listen to your non-conscious mind, to change the plasticity in your brain, to change all these thoughts. So these five steps do all this incredible work that we've just been talking about, help you to pull it up, embrace it, process it, reconceptualize, blah, 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 all that stuff. And these five steps you do for 15 to 45 minutes every day and not more. Each, each step or just in total? In total. So it's, okay. a, it's, it's this neuro cycle, neuro meaning brain. So it's a cycle. You go through all five steps. That's why it's a cycle. And you do it each day for, for 15 to 45 minutes for 21 days. From day 22 to day 42, you would have created the new thought. All you have to do is spend seven seconds a day, seven to 10 seconds a day, or you can spend longer, but a minimum of seven to 10 seconds. That's all it takes. Over another 42 days, just practicing the new thought. The so active, for example- The active reach, active right? Reach, so the, so the I think what would be helpful, well, and I think what would be helpful for the audience mm-hmm. is, so the five steps, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's number one is gather, then it's reflect, write, recheck, and then active reach. Yes. Is, is to maybe in real time, let's just say somebody's having a toxic thought. 
And let's kind of briefly, if we can go through an example, and that way people who are listening to this, I would say everybody or most people listening have toxic thoughts that come. Everyone has. Right. So So let's just, let's just say my toxic thought, just for instance, is I am not good enough. Very common, right? Yeah. Yeah. Very common. How, so how would I go through, use these five steps to be able to begin to rewire my brain in a way that I could create a new neural pathway and change the way I talk to myself. Okay, excellent. So first of all, the gather step is very quickly the five steps. The gather step is is the first step. You're gathering and embracing. You you be gathering this up. You're bringing it up from your non-conscious into your conscious mind, and you gather awareness. The way you pull it up is to gather awareness of your physical warning signals. In other words, what is your body telling you, and your emotional warning signals. What are your emotions? So, for example, it could be tension in your body or your heart could be sore or you've got terrible stomach ache or your eyes are dilated or you've got tension in your shoulders, whatever. What is the physical, so you do a body scan, what is the physical warning signal? And then what is the emotional warning signal? Is it depression, anxiety, angst, hovering anxiety, fear, frustration? What? Or it could be a whole mixture of them. So you first gather awareness of those. You then gather awareness of your behaviors. So what am I doing? Am I more aggressive? Am I fighting more? Am I more irritable? Whatever. Then you start trying to look at your perspective. What? How am I looking at life in this particular instance of the, the, I'll bring it to your example now. And then eventually you get to why am I doing it? The root. Okay. So gather it. So in the gather step, first of all, it's gathering awareness of the physical and emotional warning signals, the behaviors. Then you go to the next step in the reflect step. So you spend about a couple of minutes on that. Then you go to the reflect step, which is, okay, well, why am I having these this reaction in my body, physical. Why am I having these emotional, the depression? Where's it coming from? So reflect is a deep dig to listen to the subconscious, to find in your non-conscious, to pull this up and to start seeing the branches. When I reflect, I'm looking at this level. I'm looking at why do I have those emotions? What are they attached to? What are the, the behaviors? What are the, what is, and what are, why is that behavior? Why, why, why? So you ask, answer, discuss, ask, answer, discuss. That takes you deeper, deeper into your perspective. Then you write. We all know writing. Everyone tells you to write, but there's a million reasons why writing is important. But one of the main reasons why we write, and I always tell people to to write into a concept called a metacog, which is putting your brain on paper, which is, looks a bit like these thoughts. It's like branches all over the place. And I explain it very clearly in my book. And I also have an app called the Neurocycle. It's called the Switch app. We're changing it to the Neurocycle app. And in that, I walk you through this process in depth and with lots of examples and so on. So the right step helps you to just empty what's, pull this out even deeper and put it on paper. It changes the way that the energy flows through the brain. It activates the basal ganglia, which, which is deep inside the middle of the brain if I go here into my brain you're going to get things called the basal ganglia they work with the hippocampus in other words you're going to activate parts of your brain that'll help you pull up memories and that's what the writing's doing you're pulling up so the writing could be a big vomit on your page I mean it could be it doesn't have to be eloquent beautiful it's just get it out step four is look at what you got out now you sort it out you do a mental autopsy you recheck it you try and make sense of it you look for patterns and triggers and then the active reach is you close off the cycle for the day with some kind of practical simple 
action that you can take with you for the rest of the day. If you're using the app, you can type it into your, the app has an active reach option where you can type in your little thing. And it could be as simple as what I did, practice not saying if only today. And what it does is you set it to pop up seven times and then you go about your day and it pops up seven times during the day. You simply read it and that keeps it in conscious awareness. So the active reach is a full stop. It's an anchor back in mental peace. It's a closure. You don't want to work on toxic stuff all day. Otherwise, you're going to be a mess. You're going to ruminate. You're going to overthink. You're going to be, you limit it. We, we, we make this mistake of trying to do too much for too long. So that's why I say you limit it. Once you've got a handle on the system, this neurocycle, you can neurocycle in seven to 15 minutes. When you're first learning it, it'll take you about 45 minutes. And then, so you, then you put that aside, you go about your day, your little active reaches pop up. And then the next day you come back and you spend your seven to 15, 15 to 45 minutes. And so you go through the 21 days and then from day 42 to 63, um, the process is just basically active reaches each day. So it's a very organized process. Now, if you take the good, I'm not good enough. So now that's you feeling the emotional signals of depression, Let's say that's you've like you just on edge, you just feel edgy. So you the first thing you do is say, why? What is my emotional? Why, why am I feeling so edgy? What is what triggered me? And maybe you just read a social media post and, and and someone's doing something in a similar field or said something and it just made you feel so bad about yourself. And so you recognize, okay, gather awareness. Why? What is my emotional thwarting signal? I'm feeling like edgy. I feel awful. I feel shame. I feel bad. And so then. You say, okay, scan your body. Where am I feeling this? And you realize, oh my gosh, I've actually tightened my feet so much. My feet have gone to sleep. So my feet, so then you recognize. And then you say, okay, well, now what is my, what are my behaviors? What am I doing? I'm withdrawing. I'm actually being, oh, I'm actually being very aggressive to my spouse or whatever. I don't know what the behavior is. So you go from the f- physical, emotional to the behaviors. Then you, so that's in the gather. Then you reflect, okay, so why am I feeling depressed? What? What was it? And you ask, answer, and discuss. What started and why, why, why? Ask, answer, discuss. Oh, okay, I just read that text and or that email or that post or someone said something to me and I f- and it felt like they were accusing me of being like that. Why am I feeling like that? Oh, I'm feeling so. And then you look at the words a person said and, and why. And so you go deep and deep and then you write that down. You So you're spending, honestly, a few minutes on each and then you write it down and then you just pour it out. Get it out. And the metacog is, as I said, a way of organizing information that looks like branches on a tree. You start in the center. The reason why it's so effective, and I've shown this with my research, is that if you want to find the answer quickly and dig deep quickly, you can write in linear. But if you write in this pattern format, you'll get there quicker. You'll you'll be we we had patients that had I've had patients that had multiple personalities because of extreme trauma. And the only way we could reconnect their mind was through through this five-step process and through the metacog. When they wrote, they were describing how they were feeling. You could they on a big whiteboard, they wrote all the stuff in it. They went through step one, two, three, and then they were writing. And on the board, suddenly it was the same concept, but we saw five different views. And then we could and I could say in the reach check okay read back to me what you've written and and they said oh I said five different things and they got a revelation that they had been operating in five they've been shifting between five different people I mean that's an extreme situation if it's the my I'm not good enough when you recheck it you can start saying okay there's a pattern here I was triggered by this person saying that I'm always triggered by that kind of statement so therefore that kind of statement is a pattern and I now need to see why is there that pattern? Oh, maybe as a child, whatever. You see, so you start, so the recheck starts identifying patterns and triggers. Then you act to reach for the day. And you're not going to solve this in one day, guys. Let me stress. Doug, this is a 63-day process. 
Today, you may find nothing. Tomorrow, you might get a bit more insight. Maybe only the first week are you recognizing, hey, it's that kind of statement that triggers this feeling of I'm feeling bad about myself. So we've got to go with the flow. People think, oh, I can fix it in one day. You can't. You're going to have a little bit of insight each day and then eventually gets revealed. There you go. I mean, I've said a lot. <laughs> we, we can talk for hours. And by the way, this neurocycle I do talk about in the book, Cleaning Up Your Mental Yeah, business. yeah. And I want people to read the book. So if they if, you, if they want more information and and how Dr. Leith does this, such a beautiful job of digging really deep into the research and the science and why these steps work and why her process is so efficient and effective, I invite you once again to check out her book. And one of the things that, that pops out to me just as you were explaining that is, I mean, I, I relate this a lot to when I have certain fears and when I'm able to gather what my fears are, why I'm feeling a certain way. And then when I write them down, what I realize is like, wow, it's not really that scary. I can't believe I'm scared of this. And it takes the power away from it in a way because you're like, yeah. wow, I can't believe I'm telling myself this. And maybe that's a pattern, right? That I'm constantly exactly. telling myself fears that are not realistic or fears of things that probably will never happen. And why am I worrying about it? And let's reattach a behavior to an emotion, which I think is what you talk a lot about in your book, because one of the things that I think is very informative and powerful in these five steps is we've heard a lot of these in sing and used in a singular fashion. Exactly. Right? We've, we've exactly. talked about doing something different. We've talked about going for a walk when we're feeling anxious, or we've talked about the standard we, stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm but never in a process where it's all together. Like you can't just say affirmations without doing the work that follows up to that. Cause you see that a lot of people more damage. Yeah. Affirmation on its own will cause more damage. Right. You see a lot of people say positive affirmations and maybe they don't follow up or understand why they're even telling themselves that. And there's a, there's more shame and, and stigma around them saying that because they, they don't believe it because they have no idea either why they're saying it or how they're going to get from where they are to feeling that way. Exactly. And so in my understanding, it, your research found that doing these five steps over this 63-day period, the neurocycle, people's anxiety decreased, their depression decreased, they felt better about themselves, they were physically healthier, their brain changed, there was some neuroplasticity, decreased mm -hmm. trauma, improved sleep, like so pretty much it improved everything. all everything about their life and yeah. their and their health. And you've backed this up with data. So one of the things that that I want to kind of wrap up with that I think would would really help the audience, especially for people who are going through hard times right now, is what are some simple, like not I don't want to say fixes, but some simple tricks you might have that if somebody is feeling a certain way, like is there certain things that you do to say, I want to get out of, I want to change my state, I want to get into a, a better mood? Like what are some quick wins somebody can do to maybe have in their tool belt so that when they're feeling like crap one day or they're feeling a little off, they're not their first thought isn't drugs or alcohol. It's one of the tips that you provide. Okay, so this is a brilliant question. And just quickly to answer that, when you do what I'm going to suggest, what my research has shown is that you can get control up to 81% improved control over those kind of situations. So whether it's the extreme depression or whether it's mild depression or whether it's you're just frustrated or irritated, you, by neurocycling, you actually get up to 81% improvement and immediately drop inflammation, brain health, and all that stuff, which I explain in the book. So Doug, just to answer that quickly, I said earlier on, you don't ever stop thinking. Your mind never stops. You're always thinking feeling and choosing. So the neurocycle is how you can control this every three seconds. So you can use the neurocycle every day over 63 days 
in that 15 to 45 minute session. And that is for things like toxic trauma, toxic habits, and building a new habit, brain building, all that kind of stuff. But you can also use it as a lifestyle hack. So let's say, like, I'll give you an example to answer to, for the tip. Yesterday, I got into a situation where I was driving. I woke up very agitated about something that was worrying me in the business. And I drove to Orange Theory with my daughter, and she's my producer. And she asked me something, and I just lost it. She did. It was so reasonable what she asked me, but I was, I, because I was agitated, I didn't get my mind under control, I didn't apply my, myself properly, my techniques. And I was agitated. We ended up arguing. We both stormed into Orange Theory and like got on that treadmill with such vigor. I actually done a podcast on this. What did I do? And that's the situation there. Now, we've just, I'm agitated. I've had an argument. I was really wrong. I got totally triggered. What do you do in that situation? I'm not going to go and do 21 days. Now, what am I going to do? I need to get my mind under control then. Now, I have to work the whole day still. And this is not a healthy situation. So, I was on that first thing is I dissipated the toxic energy that had formed in my brain from the agitation and then the arguments and being triggered. By getting on the treadmill. So I transfer that. So that the exercise is a fantastic way. So even if you if you can if you don't have a treadmill to get to, or you're not at orange theory, you can jump up and down. You can do some press-ups, you can move, you can walk, you can run up and down your stairs, dissipate that energy. So that's brain preparation. I got on that treadmill, I dissipated the energy. Then I jumped into a neurocycle. So on the treadmill, I started I gathered awareness. What were my emotional signals? What were my physical? What were and I did this in like three minutes on the treadmill. Then I kept repeating it throughout the hour workout. We were on the row, we were on the floor and I kept getting deeper and deeper. So I did multiple neurocycles in that hour. I probably did about 30 in that hour. So each one was a few seconds long. I just, okay, I'm mad. Why am I mad? I couldn't drive because I was on the treadmill. So I visualized. I'm mad because she said X. I'm mad because, and, and then I reach it, but why, whatever. And then I did the little active reach. What's my active reach? Okay, well, it's my active reach was, okay, let's take this to a deeper level. And then I did another neurocycle. And so that's my tip is don't just see the neurocycle as something to fix a bad habit over time. You've got to do that too, but you can also use it as a lifestyle hack. If you worked up, if you're in fear, if someone speaks toxic words over you, if you suddenly feel shame. So what I've done is I've put a lot of those, these lifestyle I call them neurocycle life hacks. I've put them into the book as well, and you can do them in the instant. Someone speaks toxic words over you and you feel totally controlled by it. What do you do? Five, in five seconds, you can go through the five steps. So I've, I teach you how to do that in my neurocycle app that goes with the book that you can get separately. You can down, it's available already. It's called Switch at the moment, and we're changing the name to Neurocycle. The book is, by the way, on pre-order at the moment. It's released on the 2nd of March. And if you do the, if people get the pre-order, Doug, there's a lot of, there's a workbook and there's a book club and there's a Neurocycle book club where I teach you how to Neurocycle. There's chapters on kid, for kids and all kinds of stuff. So great pre-order things. But basically, the Neurocycle app also has lots and lots. Um, we keep adding all the time. There's going to be 30 added soon, but quick life hacks that you can do in, in five minutes, three minutes, two minutes. So if you're suddenly feeling shame or you're having a panic attack or you're angry or someone speaks toxic words, what do you do quickly, quickly, quickly in that moment? So it's dissipate with exercise. You, know, you can tap as well, which can calm you down. You can take a deep breath, which can calm you down. A 10 second breath is, a, is another technique that's amazing, which I also did when I was frustrated, is when you breathe in for three and out for seven, when you breathe out longer than you breathe in, that increases your decision-making capability. I call that the 10-second pause. If you add this component to it, if you say, think, feel as you count to three, and then choose for seven counts, if you do that, you add a cognitive component to the breathing, 
And in that 10 seconds, you've got breath work and cognitive work. And if you repeat that six to nine times, you will calm down your brain and your body instantly. So I did that on the treadmill while I was getting myself calm. I did the exercise, I did the breathing, and then I went into the neurocycles. And all of that, I did it for an hour, but you can do it in five seconds. Yeah. And I think the important thing that you just brought up is the notion of practicing the pause, which I think we could all benefit from at times, right? And you talk about that in your book. I think it's like the 30 to 90 second rule, if you will, or 16, I'm sorry. No problem. And one of the things that of people that I've coached through the years that have helped them is for people that are trying to, you know, thrive in recovery from drugs or people that are trying to get out of that cycle of addiction, as I've said, listen, the next time you're thinking about making a bad decision or a bad habit, this is my advice is I'm like, listen, go for a 20 to 30 minute walk or run, whatever you can do, come back. Do as many push-ups as you can in a couple sets, then make the decision. I was like, that's on you. Whatever decision you want to make based off that, but at least give it a try. And what tends to happen is they're able to transfer that negative pain, that negative energy into something positive. They feel better about themselves because they actually practiced some self-control and didn't turn to the drugs or alcohol in the first inclination and did something that was going to better their health. And they're like, wow, I'm feeling good. And then they, they really start to think like, wow, like I really didn't need to use whatever it was. And I'm not saying it's going to work all the time, but but if you do, if you do that, sorry to interrupt you, but if you do that, if you battle with that kind of thing and you do that for 63 days, you will have turned that into a habit in your brain. You would have, like I was saying earlier on, and then you'll find that after nine weeks, you'll, you won't do that anymore. If you do, you'll catch yourself just like that and you'll be able to control it. So it is something, and, and the science behind that is in the book too, the science behind the, the 60 to 90 minute uh, the, the pause, which I've just described in the 10 seconds. Seven, exactly, yeah. pause, right? So okay. what you do is you breathe in for three, out for seven, that's the 10. You add the think, feel, choose component and you do that six to nine times. That actually changes the brain completely. It drops the, 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 the anger stimulus, whatever got you into that state would have caused chaos in your brain. You'd have, you'll have red spots. We'll actually see red spots across the brain, which shows that there's too much what we call high beta and a lot of imbalance. As soon as you do a neurochemical chaos, as soon as you do that 10 second pause, 60 to 90 times, and then follow with some exercise. But even if you don't have time for exercise, if you just do that 60 to 90 second pause, you will calm down the neurochemical chaos. You'll rebalance the two sides of the brain and you'll take the red spots will go away in your brain in an instant. And when your brain is like that, you can think with fluidity and cognitive fluidity. If not, you're going to be very impulsive. You're going to be reactive and not responsive. Mm. You can't control the events and circumstances of life, but you can control your responses and your reactions. That's a, that's a really so, good way to, to kind of end our conversation. Yeah, there you go. And I think there's a lot of science behind that, which you explain in the book. So you talked about a lot in our episode today, and, and I think people are going to get a ton of, of valuable insight, understanding, clarity, and some actionable takeaways. So I invite people that are listening to this, as I always kind of do, is maybe this is one of these episodes, you might want to pause it every so often. So you can kind of jot down notes from what Dr. Leaf or something maybe I said, and then figure out how does this apply? Like, what are some of the the negative thoughts I've been telling myself? Or what are some of the unhealthy patterns? Or how can I become more self-aware of how I'm feeling? Or whatever the case may be, and then decide how you're going to move forward right? Just like Dr. Leaf just said, we can't control our circumstances, but we can certainly control how we respond to those circumstances. And the other thing that I definitely want to invite people to do is to pick up uh, her newest book, Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess, whether whether you do it on Audible, whether you get it off Amazon, whether you get it, wherever you d- decide to digest your information, get the book. It's There's a lot of science. There's a lot of therapy talk. There's a lot of brain, mind, 
but there's a lot of valuable information that's easy to understand. And she breaks it down in a very simplistic way. And these five steps, they all will make sense to you into why she picked them. And I think you'll see that you'll feel empowered if there's some toxic thinking or anxiety or depression or stuff that you just have been dealing with, you can't seem to get out of, that you've tried everything and nothing seemed to work. So I invite you to check out her book. And as always, what we love is hearing feedback. What were some of your biggest takeaways? What were some of your biggest lessons or aha moments? Take a screenshot, tag myself, tag Dr. Leaf, and we'd love to hear from you. So Dr. Leaf, I want to thank you so much for coming on. So where can people find out more about you if they want to connect on social media, maybe your website and that sort of thing? Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a great discussion. I've loved talking to you. They can find me on social media. My handle is Dr. Caroline Leaf. I put up posts every day, obviously, about this stuff to help you. My website's drleaf.com. They can get the book at cleaningupyourmentalmess.com. It's on pre-order at the moment. Lots of bonuses, as I mentioned. Yeah, and wherever books are sold. And I did I read the Audible, by the way. So it's my voice behind the Audible. So <laughs> that does that does help. So Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time and coming on all the valuable information and what you're doing to to help with this mental mess we're in and helping people improve their mental health in this, this epidemic. And it's, it's very much appreciated. I'm sure the audience is going to appreciate it too. And once again, thank you all for listening to this episode of the adversity advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst. We'll see you next time.